This is the Memo by Howard Marks. Today, another episode of Behind the Memo, in which Howard sheds some light on themes from his most recent memo. Here he is discussing I Beg to Differ with Oak Tree senior financial writer Anna Shemansky. Howard, in this memo, you weave together a number of themes related to the importance of thinking and acting differently. Let's start with one of these key concepts, second-level thinking. To begin, can you explain what you mean by that phrase? This was a phrase that I came up with back in, I think it was 2010. What it says is that the first-level thinker is superficial and shallow, and basically everybody can think at that level. So in the competitive game of investing, where everybody's trying to have a higher return and more professional success than others, doing the thing that everybody can do should not hold the key to success. If you want to be more successful than others, you have to do something better than others and something different from others. You have to be exceptional in some way. Investing is a funny area. It's really easy to be average. Wall Street sells products which guarantee to make you average. But it's very hard to be above average with any consistency. I'll give you an example. When Andrew was in college, my son, he would come home and he would say, Dad, I hear we should buy Ford stock because my understanding is they're going to come out with a Mustang and it's going to be terrific, new car. And I would say, well, who doesn't know that? If everybody knows it, then it's probably already reflected in everybody's thinking and thus in the price of Ford stock. So you have to know something they don't know in order to have a knowledge advantage. So the first level thinker says, oh, they're coming out with a new car. I hear it's great. We should buy the stock. The second level thinker says they're coming out with a new car. Everybody thinks it's going to be great. I don't think it's going to be as great as everybody else thinks. You should sell the stock. Now, the second level thinker, just because he thinks differently and a little more deeply, isn't necessarily right. The car may be a great car, but the bottom line is if you think the same as everybody else, you'll act the same as everybody else. If you act the same as everybody else, you'll perform the same as everybody else. Not a very good formula for distinguishing yourself as an investor. If you want to be above average, you have to do something different. But different is not enough. You have to do something different and better. And as I know you've said in other memos, this is especially important now because people have so much access to information, so much access to data. So then it's thinking that can differentiate investors. Absolutely. In Something of Value, which I wrote in January of 21, I talk about Buffett having a better understanding than others of how you make money in the market. And as a consequence, sitting in the back room in Omaha, reading Moody's reports on companies and occasionally finding one that was ridiculously cheap because he had looked into it and nobody else had. He talks about having been able to buy dollars for 50 cents. And clearly, one of the reasons was that he had information others didn't have, that others had overlooked or failed to unearth. The world has come a long way since then. Nowadays, everybody has a computer. Everybody has access to tons of information, the same information. The SEC passed something called Reg FD, the Regulation for Fair Dealing, which essentially says that every company has to give the same information to every party. Andrew came up with a phrase in Something of Value, reflecting the changes that I just described. Readily available quantitative information about the present cannot be the source of superiority, mainly because everybody has it. 
And not only does everybody have it, but everybody has a computer with which to manipulate it and screen it and process it so that just about everybody can come up with uniformly appropriate analysis of the readily available quantitative information. And what that means simply is, if you want to be superior again, you have to go further. You have to either look at the qualitative, look at the non-present, that is the future, or do a better job than others in distilling the import of the quantitative information that is available. But again, if you're not better in some phase of the analytical process, your performance is not going to be better other than through better luck, and luck is not much of a plan. To me, one important aspect of second-level thinking is that investors have to acknowledge how much they don't know and how much they can't know. And yet, if they want to outperform, they have to act, even acknowledging how much they don't know. That's a risk. And this connects to another significant concept in the memo, daring to be wrong. I've expressly dealt with the importance of being different in two prior memos mentioned in this memo. The first memo was Dare to Be Great, written in 2006. And then I followed that up with a second memo, Dare to Be Great 2, in 2014. And they should probably be read together and in concert with the newest memo, I beg to differ. In the first memo, I said, you have to dare to be great and you have to work in a non-bureaucratic, non-conformist mode in order to excel. In the second memo, which was about a decade later, I said, look, everybody dares to be great. That's not really much of a challenge. The question is, A, do you dare to be different from others? B, do you dare to be wrong? And C, do you dare to look wrong for a while? These are three much more important questions than do you dare to be great. It's not easy to be different. Think of a stock. It's going up rapidly. Why? Because most people think it's great and deserves a higher price and will make you money if you buy it today. So everybody wants to buy it. Not many people want to sell it. The people who want to buy it want to buy it really strongly. The people who might consider selling it aren't motivated to do so. Now, you might be convinced you're right, but it takes a very, very strong ego and a very, very high degree of confidence to say, those thousand people are wrong, I'm right. So it's hard to be different. The second point is, let's say you have the nerve to buck the trend and to be a maverick and to do something that others aren't doing, you're willing to be different. But you have to accept the reality that anything you do, including being different, has the potential to be wrong. So that means that there's a stock. If you buy it, you could be wrong. If you don't buy it, you could be wrong. So that kind of sounds like the argument is balanced, symmetrical, but it's not really. Because if everybody else is buying it and you buy it, and it turns out to be wrong, you can't be castigated too much because everybody else made the same mistake. But if everybody else is buying and you sell it and it goes up, then you can be castigated because you did something that was clearly out of step with all the others. Everybody knew that was wrong and you did it anyway. So when you do something which is different and bear the risk of being wrong, that wrongness can be penalized. 
That's why John Maynard Keynes said it is better for reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. The third element is daring to look wrong. What's the difference between daring to be wrong and daring to look wrong? The difference is that even if you make a great decision, and even if it is proved to be a correct decision in the fullness of time, it's highly probable that there will be a period during which it looks like a bad decision. So even if you're right, you have to be willing to look wrong for a while. So let's say there's some stock and it's been rising like a rocket ship and you think it's been overdone. You think it's crazy. It doesn't come close to justifying that price. You think it's a clear sale. So you sell it. Now, it's entirely likely that the factors and the energy that have caused it to be a rocket ship to date will continue in force for a while. You may be right, but one of the first lessons you have to learn in investing is just because you're right doesn't mean it's going to work right away. And if you sell it today, there's every probability that it's going to continue to go up tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Your hope is that eventually you'll be proved right and it'll decline to a price lower than today's. So as I say, if you dare to be different, even if you're not wrong, there's a good probability you'll look wrong for a while and you have to be able to live with that. And those things are not so easy. Howard, you say something later in the memo that I think is really important. You talk about how challenging it can be not only to predict what is going to happen in the short term, but also to know if the price reflects the fact that other people also think this is going to happen. Exactly. Most people, in my opinion, don't understand what makes stocks go up. Most people think that good news or favorable performance makes stocks go up and bad news or unfavorable performance makes stocks go down. In other words, that it's fundamentals, the company performance. What actually determines prices is fundamentals and how people feel about those fundamentals. So you can have good news, but if people feel that it's blah, it's unimpressive, the stock doesn't do anything. You can have bad news, but if people say, hey, that's a terrible report, but I was expecting worse, you can have the stock go up. So the real question is fundamentals and psychology. I quote my partner, Bruce Karsh, in the memo as saying, is it priced in? And this is the mantra of professional investors. Is it priced in? This goes back to what I said to Andrew. Who doesn't know that? Basically, the big moves in stocks come when things happen, which are favorable surprises. Good news that isn't factored in. Or news which is bad, but better than people are thinking. And that's not factored in. So that's always the requirement. Is it factored in? And as I say in the memo, it's very, very hard to know. It all comes down, like so many other things in investing, to judgment. One phrase you've used many times over the years, and you use it again in this memo, is uncomfortably idiosyncratic. Can you explain what you mean by this? As I say in the memo, I find those two words, investment poetry. It's a beautiful phrase. It's not my phrase. Dave Swenson ran the endowment at Yale from 1985 until 2021. And he had among the one, two, three best numbers for a very long period. And his margin of superiority was huge. The way he did it was that early in his career at Yale, he sold 
most of Yale's public stocks and bonds, suppressed bonds greatly, which have steady returns, but at a low level, went heavily into alternative investments such as private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds, subjected the Yale portfolio to a very high degree of illiquidity, such that if he changed his mind, he couldn't get out of, I think, most of Yale's investments. He was stuck in them. And in order to go into these relatively novel fields, he by definition had to hire a bunch of managers that he thought were clever, but didn't have long-term track records to support it. He had to make a judgment there. Guess what? In many ways, he was different. And in many ways, he took the risk of being wrong. He dared to be different. He did it early. He did it big. And he took very, very unusual positions. But for the most part, they worked out exceptionally well. Abe wrote a book called Pioneering Portfolio Management. It came out in the year 2000. It's a pretty important book for readers, especially institutional managers. He is a quote in there, and he says that investment management, by which he means successful investment management, requires the assumption of uncomfortably idiosyncratic positions, which in the common view appear terribly out of step. So he was really talking about the things that I was talking about just earlier. Idiosyncratic. That means different from most other people. And clearly the things he did were different from most other people. Just being different from others, we discussed, that's not good enough. You have to be different and right. And Dave was different and right. His positions were idiosyncratic, different from others, and potentially uncomfortable. Now, Dave never gave me the impression that he was uncomfortable, but for most people, mere mortals, the positions have to be idiosyncratic, and most idiosyncratic positions will be uncomfortable until proved correct. It's not something that everybody can emulate, but clearly the road to great performance by definition, as Dave said, as I believe, the road to great performance by necessity runs through uncomfortably idiosyncratic positions. When people hear dare to be different, they may think this means always doing the opposite of consensus. But can you explain the difference between this knee-jerk contrarianism and intelligent contrarianism? Well, as you say, there is a whole discipline or concept called contrarianism, the heart of which is doing the opposite of the herd. If you think about it in the simplest of terms, the economy is doing well, companies are issuing good profit reports, stock prices are rising, investors are becoming more enthusiastic, they are cheered by the appreciation and they want to get in on it. So they buy. And the better the economy does, the better the companies do, the better the prices do, the more people want to get in. And they buy more and more as prices rise. On the other hand, eventually things cool off. The economy stops doing as well. Companies stop reporting profits that are as favorable. Stock prices start to decline. That depresses people and they want to sell. And the worse the economy does, and the worse the corporation does, and the lower the price goes, the more they want to sell. And of course, the less they want to buy. So if you think about that process overall, what it says is that when prices are high and rising, people buy. And when prices are low and falling, they sell. Arguably the opposite of what they should do. I always quote Warren Buffett as saying, I like hamburgers. And when hamburgers go on sale, I eat more hamburgers. What I just told you is that when stocks go on sale, they eat fewer hamburgers and sometimes no hamburgers. I was taught buy low, sell high. 
the herd tends to buy high, sell low. So some bright person said, let's be contrarian. If the herd is buying, let's sell. If the herd is selling, let's buy. At the extremes, it's a good idea. When stocks are ridiculously high and buoyed by excessive psychology, it's good to be a seller. And when they're unduly depressed and selling at ridiculously low multiples, it's good to be a buyer in general. But just as the herd is often wrong, you can't say that it's always wrong. The behavior of the herd is not so dependably wrong that you can always do the opposite and expect to make money safely. What I say in the memo is it's kind of like with second level thinking. Your thinking about contrarianism has to be deeper and more complex and by definition better than the person who just says, well, let's do the opposite of the herd all the time. What I say in the memo is to be a good contrarian, you have to say, what is the herd doing? Why are they doing it? What's wrong with it? What should I do about that? So much more complex. Again, there's no place you can look for the answers. You can't Google why are stocks going up. So all of these things are judgments that one has to make. The final section of the memo focuses on the importance of long-term thinking. Why did you choose to highlight this idea in this particular memo? When I sit down to write the memos, Anna, I don't always know what I'm going to write. Thinking about A, I think, causes thought B to pop into my mind. And when I get that down on paper, thought C pops in. I don't sit down and say, just a minute, hold it now. What am I going to write? It just comes. That's one of the reasons I enjoy doing it so much. I didn't have a plan, Anna, to write a section called One Way to Diverge from the Pack. I got a note from Bruce Karsh, and he talked about the difficulty of making investment decisions today, as usual, and the difficulty of figuring out what expectations are factored into market prices today. It made me think back to our London conference for clients, which we held on June 21st. I got up and talked about the market, which had been catapulting downward for the preceding month. It was suffering under worries concerning inflation and interest rate rise and recession. What I said to the audience was, if you think about those things, what do they have in common? And the answer is, they're just about the short run. What's the pattern for inflation going forward? Will the Fed raise rates to head it off? And how much and when? Will that cause a recession? How bad and when, et cetera? All of these things are about the next few months or couple of years. But number one, in the long run, they're kind of washed out. And in the short run, we can't know anything about the answers to these questions. We can't attain superior knowledge on these subjects. Everybody who's listening, I believe, knows my view on macro forecasting. You can't know more than the other investors on a consistent basis. Thinking about the short run and trying to figure out the outlook for inflation and rates and recession, number one, is hard to attain superiority. Number two, if you come up with a view, it's hard to figure out whether that view is adequately or excessively or inadequately reflected in prices today. I believe that thinking about the short run macro and trying to use it to make you a better performer, I think is a waste of time. What matters is the long run. I say in the memo that since 1920, we've had 17 recessions, one Great Depression, several wars, including one world war, now a world pandemic, and many 
instances of worry about global tensions. And guess what? The S&P has risen by 10.5% a year for over 100 years. The most important thing of the last 100 years was, as I said in the memo, uh, selling out. The most important thing was to get on that trend and ride it. Trying to get off because there's a recession coming in six months and then trying to get back on when it's over is mostly folly, in my opinion. When I write these memos, I circulate them among my colleagues at Oak Tree to get their views. And I included something in this memo that a lot of people told me they got a chuckle out of. I talked about how inappropriate it is to try to change strategies in the short run to reflect short-run expectations. I believe it's important to have an approach, a philosophy, and stick to it. No approach or philosophy will be right all the time. Every approach or philosophy will go through really tough periods, but that doesn't mean that you can improve upon the results by getting on and getting off and switching approaches midstream. I sum this up by saying very simply that if you wait at a bus stop long enough, you'll catch a bus. But if you run from bus stop to bus stop, you may never catch a bus. Now, it sounds chicken. It sounds passive to say, I'm just going to wait at this bus stop until I catch a bus. But in the real world of investing, where things are rapidly changing and highly unpredictable, I think that sticking with an approach or philosophy for the long run and not radically transforming one's portfolio in the short run is better and has a higher probability of working than super active investing, which has a great possibility of being in error. When I started in this business, 1969, we talked about owning stocks for five, six years. It took about a couple of weeks at the end of the year to figure out what your return was for the year in your portfolio. Today, every portfolio manager knows his return in real time, and every client is concerned about their performance in the most recent quarter and the year to date. I believe that investors who focus instead on the long run can get an advantage in so doing. That's a way to be nonconformist, different, and I hope superior. That's really the message that I concluded with. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. 
This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation. <laughs>